Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Beam Voice podcast. My name is Petru Conduraro and today's guest is the design technology leader and senior associate at DLR Group. He's also adjunct professor at the Washington University in St. Louis for the School of Engineering and Applied Science. He's a LinkedIn learning content author as well. I'm so glad to have you here. How are you doing? Oh, oh fantastic. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Let's start by telling us a little bit about yourself. I'll throw in two. We missed one. Um, so I'm also part of our R&D studio at DLR Group too. So there's leadership for design technology, and then there's how we research on technology things that we can use for design. So that expands it even further. So I kind of get into everything. Um, my background's architectural. Uh, I started out uh, going to school for a bachelor's of architecture at Southern Illinois University in, in uh, Carbondale, Illinois. Um, and then went out to San Diego for grad school. I worked for you know ten years or so in in different design firms, uh, different you know retail, healthcare, um, military facilities. I've, got, I've done a lot of different projects and worked in a bunch of different places. And but I've, I started using Revit in like 2004, and so I always was kind of first to technology, first using things, and was always asked, "How do I do this? How do I do that?" How, how should I do this sort of thing? And so you end up doing your projects and then also helping people. And so eventually you start doing like 50 hours of work on your projects and 20 hours helping people. And it's not real sustainable. Um, so I ended up just kind of getting pushed into a technology leadership role, which I've never really looked back at the time. It was hard. Like, do I want to stop designing and, and just start working with things? And I've, I've been able to just expand what I do find new challenges constantly. And then as a person, I like to learn and teach. So it's like, Everything I kind of do works together. So like the stuff at Washington University, I teach digital construction technology. So it's literally just, hey, what's out there? What can we use to design and build buildings and then teach students about it, what it means, what the impact is. Um, so it all just kind of works together. And it, it's just a giant blob of I don't know where one thing starts and the other one ends. And, you know, like even the, the R&D component, we spend half the time trying to figure out like, you know, what is the everyday of design technology and then what is research of it? And what and where are we going new? And so it, it's just, it's fun. I'm never bored. Yeah, that sounds like lots of fun. Uh, it's uh, it's your uh, team of uh, R&D big? Like, uh, do uh, DLR uh, have so a big uh, research group? It's interesting. There's a lot of R&D adjacent people. So the way it works is we have three R&D leaders. And so we have three different perspectives uh, between our team. It's myself and Prem and Bonnie, and we, we work together pretty well, uh, kind of bouncing ideas and keeping each other in check because we all have very different perspectives. Um, but then each one of our market sectors across the firm, they all have things that they want to research. And so we're almost like project managers for certain research projects that the sectors decide they want to do. Uh, me, because I've designed technology, I, that has component of research requests that some of those projects I'm actually involved in. So we're doing one where we're trying to write a series of scripts to automate construction documents. So the idea is like, do as much work as you can in design development, get all of your questions answered through the, the owner and the client and the end users and develop your model to a level. And then how many buttons can you push to just spit out your documents or how much, how far can you take that? And so we're, we're doing a lot of work scripting there and we, we've gone pretty far with it. So that's one of those projects that I actually have to work in where other ones, like we're doing this programming tool for a K-12 group, um, something like that, I'm more of championing and helping getting them research and working within it and less of doing the actual work. 
Um, so it, there's just a ton of different people from each sector that are doing research and, and amazing research. And then we even expand out to work with universities and partnerships there. So it's hard to say what the number is because it's more of like what year is it and how many different projects do we have and how many people are we sucking into that, you know, that massive R&D. Yeah, I see. What is uh, some of the bleeding edge technology that you, you managed to use it to get some results with? Huh, that's a really good question. Um, and it's, it's everywhere. And it's one of those things. So I, I moved from St. Louis to go to DLR group because of some of the opportunity that was there. And there's so much from what we're working on. And we have some really, really knowledgeable experts. Um, Shono D is one of our HPD, so high performance design group. And basically they're the ones that like help us get to net zero on buildings. And so they do all sorts of things, but she's a sensor expert. Um, and almost want to like tell her to be sensor Shona because she knows more about sensors. So like anything that's tracking CO2 motion, uh, she knows more about that than any person I've ever met. Um, and so she's actually working with some universities and they're doing um, like machine learning on the results of CO2 to see if you can predict out if there's people in room, how many people are in room just by seeing the CO2 that's in the air. So a lot of like our building automation systems have sensors in there. So can you track from that sensor? Do you have to put a, an individual sensor in the room? Um, what's that right blend of sensors that you need to make a digital twin that actually works? Because I'm seeing so many things with digital twins where it's just here's you know the flat, this is what you do, but it's all around what you need to get out of it and what level of information you need and the right blend of sensors will get that for you. So we've got people doing stuff like that. Uh, myself, I've got a couple of machine learning projects set up next year to help us predict out, you know, like what types of spaces you'll need, what types of things you'll need in spaces based on historical data. Um, a lot of stuff with Dynamo, a lot of stuff with Rhino and Grasshopper. Um, our, we have a reality capture department that they're really trying to push as much as they can do. So a lot of firms, have, you know, are in that transition between tripod scanning to mobile scanning. And we've, we've kind of stayed right on that leading or bleeding edge with it. Um, we've been looking at the Navis scanner recently. Um, and then you know, we have a GeoSlam scanner. We have a LiDAR scanner. And using those to best best capture as fast as we can and the best quality that we can on whatever project we need. So, I mean, there's a, you name it, you can go into it. You go design biz. We have people using Unreal, Unity, um, Twin Motion, And um, yeah, it's just, it's a playground. That sounds really exciting. It's so nice to have uh, such a work uh, environment where you have uh, all these uh, all these uh, visionaries because not everybody has, uh, is using all these tools to, and not everybody tries to invest so much in in the future actually. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, I don't know, is this standard in the US? Like uh, most of the companies have an R and D department? No. Um, it definitely isn't. And I mean, DLR Group has been doing a lot of investment in the right areas, especially when it comes to technology. Um, what I love, like I'll, I'll present the things that we're doing and um, I'll get grilled on it by our executive leadership, which to me, that's rare. Like normally you go and talk about tech and you just get somebody staring at you like, that's neat. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, great. And then here it's like, well, how do you plan to implement that? What's the return? How are you tracking that? What are you doing? How many hours is this going to take? And you're like, Oh, this is awesome. Like you get to go through and actually vet it. And like, I have those plans. It's actually there. I think it through, but then to actually have a conversation and get 
critiqued on portions of it means that they care and understand. And even when they don't understand, they'll take the time to go and research it or ask you more questions and keep going. Um, so that's like the biggest thing you can ask for. And as far as like the industry goes, that's one of our biggest problems in the industry is we're very hourly based. Uh, so all of our contracts, it's, it's that individual project. It's on to the next project. Even we struggle a little bit getting like our, our firm will actually fund these projects and we can't get people to work on them because they have so many other projects they have to do. So like that, that's a big challenge is not only are you willing to invest, but are you willing to put up the people that do the work? And it's usually your best people because it's somebody that's really interested in learning and doing. And so that that's something that we have to figure out. But most firms don't invest in the R&D component of it. And not that they have to invest a ton. And I actually think that a lot of firms, especially like smaller ones, pulling together and putting like one person to work with several firms may let them be able to expand their footprint and do other things. So I, I think we're at a point where we need to before software kind of takes over a lot of what we can do on design and construction. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah, this is, uh, like you say, it, it's not needed to 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 uh, finance or uh, make a complete uh, department of R&D, right? You just need one or two people there, like to be, to to have someone to, to see what is happening around, right? Mm-hmm. You you mentioned about uh, the the sensors and uh, mm -hmm. to make these predictions for uh, the CO two uh, emissions. Uh, what is this actually? Um, how do you capture the data? Uh, do you get that data just like behind the three D model? Do you have a three D model here? Do we talk about a digital twin or it just depends. pure data? Yeah, I mean it. It's one of the, like, I almost get mad at digital twins as a term because it, it's just kind of grown into this thing. And it, it's really, what do you need? Um, so you can create the data that you would need to make decisions with just the data sets. You don't necessarily need the 3D model for it. it, it the 3D model is more of if you're running like simulation on something and you want to see how something new is going to work. You want to see when something's going to fail. Because um, otherwise, if, if it's just to be able to spot what your issues are. So let's say you've got a whole bunch of mechanical equipment above the ceiling that's failing. You really just need to know where it is and where to go look for it. And so you you may only need a floor plan that's colorized by assets. You can put that together in a web page. You can put that together uh, in Power BI even if you wanted to. Um, but if you wanted to have something with place and use augmented reality where you can walk around the field with iPads and look at it, then you need the 3D model to have the geometry that you can toggle whether things are on or off. So it's really about what you need. But as far as like tracking, um, you know, like even, I'm gonna unplug and show, hopefully the numbers aren't too bad today. Yeah, so I've got at my desk a Kytera monitor and this tracks um, tracks data over time and you can see it, it, it shows what's in there. And then we have, um, you know, software and data people in our Chicago office that are actually looking at that data and they're going out to the website, they're, they're doing an API call and pulling in the data and then they're putting together, you know, they, they're using SkySpark to do it, but they're putting together alerts based on the, the information that's in there. So we're doing this as kind of like a side project because we're all stuck work from home to kind of show, you know, what are these values like in your home office versus at your your regular office. And we're finding that the air quality at the regular office is dramatically better than your house. 
um, we're seeing like you, you actually tell when each of us are cooking because you see like a spike up in, in VOCs. It's just really cool. Like you can learn a ton by watching. And then the question is like, what can you do with this? What does it matter? And to, to me, I've got this mantra of like same data, different lens. So I mentioned like all the different blend of sensors. You can put all these sensors together and that's the data set. Each person in an organization cares about that differently. Um, so you can like the facilities manager cares about which spaces need maintaining or your real estate manager needs to know which spaces are being used and how they're being used and how they need to be changed. Um, so you can take that same information and change it for however you want to do it. A lot of firms are talking about like just right now seeing which spaces need to be cleaned. So if you can tell where people were, you know, again, the real estate person cares, are these rooms being used or not? But the maintenance crew cares which rooms actually need to be cleaned and which rooms really need to be cleaned. Or, you know, if you're going into COVID and you're looking for which rooms had more people or too many people, then you need to send your security person down to actually, you know, tell people to move away or, or to do something different. So it, to me, it's, it's collect all this information and how you present it back in what form is what really matters. Yeah. And how can we make, or you make that, uh, 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 easy to to read and use because we are talking about uh, specialists here, right? Mm -hmm. It's like experts using this, but how can we make this usable for asset owners, for example? Uh, are many asset owners interested in this kind of stuff? Do they think so far? I, I think a lot of people are interested in it and a lot of people see the cost of doing it or you know, they'll, they'll buy into a system that does too much and then they don't actually do anything with it or it's just dashboards of information. Because you kind of mentioned you can present it. So like Power BI is a great example. You can put that on top of data, but it's still just kind of organizing in a way that it's readings. And unless you're an engineer or trained professional, you can't look at those readings and know what it means. Like, sure, 88 CO2, like, what does that mean? Like, it doesn't mean anything to anybody, even if it's red or green, it's like, well, how red is this? Like, am I going to die? Am I gonna, like, it, you need to be able to translate that. And so there's data, which is just the raw data. When you translate it into vision, it's information that you can read, but you still have to infer from it. So it's that next step of like, do you take this and do you email somebody and say, Hey, do this. Do you colorize something red? Do you create a list of things that are failing? It's that part that it, to me is the important part that most of the stuff is missing. And, and we're getting into it quite a bit with some of our clients. It's like, how do you translate all this data and help? And that's kind of the fun, exciting part of it. Yes. Like it's how do you make, how do you make the building that you design better? How do you prove that the building you design actually is doing what it's supposed to be doing? And then if, if you talk to our energy group, they're taking it and it's really more of like, how do you optimize this building to make sure that it stays as a net zero building? Like you did all this work to design a building that's supposed to consume no energy. Well, that only works if you keep these things maintaining and working the way they're designed and things fail. So without tracking it, you don't really know and you're not actually doing what you set out to do. And so you can put all these monitors on all of the devices in the building and actually understand what you're consuming. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a future uh, Star Trek movie. I don't know if it's <laughs> happening. If there are buildings where uh, where people do this, but uh, it's definitely something that uh, we should aim for. Sounds like a ideal. It's a growing trend, and it's why digital twins gets talked about so much. Because to me, like that's where that's going. Um, 
it's just a lot of people aren't able to do that. And they aren't able to really like take the data and translate it into the needs. They can present the data all day long, but they can't actually turn it into something that you need to do things about and make it actionable. And so it, it it's one of those things like it's growing. I think you're seeing a lot of buzz and you have to sift through that and figure out what is somebody actually doing something and what somebody tagging digital twins onto just a laser scan. Like you have to take it and do more than just show that piece of information. Um, and I think, you know, 5G getting pushed out is going to make a difference on that. I'm a little concerned with COVID that it may take a step back. If we're not going back into office spaces, that could be a challenge. But then you also have the other, the flip side of it is, you know, we're uh, big on like reset certification, which is indoor air quality. And you're seeing a lot of workplaces having to show that their workplace is safe for their employees and show that, you know, hey, the, these spots are good, the, the air changes over and it clears out these rooms and they're good. And we're finding through reset, we're able to do that pretty well. So there are some that are pushing to it. So it's kind of a, a, a bit of a step back in some areas and then others seem to be leaping forward with it, which is kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. We, we are on the right track, definitely. <laughs> Can only hope. Yeah. We're always on the track we're on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, even if COVID might set us back, at the same time, it sped up many things. We were forced to improve our ways of working, right? Mm -hmm. we, we must see the positive from this as well. Of course, there are there is enough negative, uh, no doubt about that. But it it also had some, it, it pushed us, like it, it, it took us out of our comfort zone. and. Maybe this will help us in uh, with, with BIM and everything, uh, mm -hmm. adopting technology and digitalization for, uh, quicker. Well, it's definitely challenging how you design. Um, you know, a lot of people don't have that studio space to lay out and draw a sketch, build a model. Um, even, you know, the traditional building of a 3D model. So you build it and it's just in your office. How are you sharing that with the team? How are you sharing that with the client in a meaningful way? And if it's holding a model up here and twisting it around, well, then why not have that virtual in 3D and why not just work there? And so it, it's definitely challenging how, how we traditionally would have designed in the past. Yeah. Let's make a segue back to university. If I may ask, what yeah. kind of technologies are you teaching there? Uh, do you teach mostly for design or also for construction or ma and management as well? So it's actually through the construction management program. Uh, most of my students are dual majors. They have uh, the construction management, and then they also have an architectural major. And you know, Washington University is a, a pretty good university in the United States, and there most of the students are just smart as can be. Like it, it's really cool. But the class is digital construction technology, and it's kind of BIM, BDC, and IPD. So the idea is BIM is the thing. So like. BIM being this 3D model. And then BDC is the activities around it, the virtual design and construction. So like, are you using, um, you know, for design, are you using virtual uh, design visualization or energy analysis? All these things are capable because of data and 3D model and we're using it for fabrication or building ownership on the, and so we look at design, construction and building ownership based around BIM, so the activities you can do. And then IPD being the, uh, the pie in the sky world contract structure where nobody sues each other and we, we're not worried about data sharing or anything. It's just, 
this stuff's here. We can do all these things. How far can we take it? And so we try to just talk about what's out there and what it means. Um, last year, we got sucked way too into AI and automation and what that means to our industry. And like, ended up talking about like the, you know, the driverless job site. And like, we looked at construction design and ownership and identified all the things that could be automated out by AI. And that was a really fun conversation. Then we got into like 3D printing of buildings and how that would change um, even on a design level. So let's say we're 3D printing a building and you know, not looking at today where it's doing just kind of extrusions, but let's say that we can actually do additive design of structure and we're able to do this generative design structure that's across there. What does that do to like our wood industry? Like the two by four, is that a thing? Like it, it nominal wood dimensions, if you're not using them for building, what's what's the existence of that if you just have a printer on the site? So like we're, we kind of get into that sort of conversation. I, it's fun. It's uh, three hours on every Thursday night and we just talk, like I'll, I'll show a couple of videos or I'll do a presentation and then we talk about what it means. I'll have the students present on it. It's just a ton of fun for me. Yeah, sounds very exciting. Uh, you just dropped a, a bucket of uh, acronyms there. Let's start <laughs> Sorry. dissecting them a little bit. Uh, okay. I, I just don't want to scare uh, the audience BIM, with this. And IPD. Yeah, let's start with BIM. Uh, what yeah. is BIM for you? How how do you define BIM? It's a 3D representation of a database. And so it's the blending of a model with a database behind it and uh, established relationships within that geometry based on the data of the database. What is the meaning and what do we have in the database? All of the information about the building. So it, it's a database. It, have you ever seen one exported? One exported what? A IFC model? The database of a Revit model? No. So you can actually just export the entire database and look at it. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things that like, once you start looking at that, I feel like BIM just makes sense the entire thing is broken up with tables. And so like going all the way back of like, what's a database? Um, it's just a collection of spreadsheets that are related in some way. And so the spreadsheets or they're called tables are each category of things inside of Revit. So like Revit, there's visibility categories of casework, walls, structural columns, structural floors. And so there's a table for the type and a table for the instance. And the type is that class of object and it would be like, if it's casework, you know, what type of casework is this? Is it a base cabinet? Is it an upper cabinet? What's the size of it? Does it have shelves? What's it made out of? Who's the manufacturer and what's the cost? And then if it's the instance, then you're talking about like where in the building is that cabinet at and how many of these are here. And those are stored separately in the database. And that's, it, it does that for every single category inside of Revit. And so all of this information can be pushed and pulled. And as you move the geometry in Revit, the database is updating the information about these things. How is this database meant to be used and by whom? Like, uh, are we talking just about the database that the designer is making and delivering to the contractor who is building the building? Uh, good question. Um, it depends who's using it for what and when, because um, like we're talking about digital twins, like that same database transfers into that, that same, it, it's about transferring of data. 
Um, the database is a schema of a way to store information about a building. And so that's why it is building information modeling. Um, and usually it's not great for site stuff. It's not great outside of multiple buildings. And you have to start adding in information to collect it all together. And that's totally doable, but it becomes about like transferring information from one spot to the other. And so the software programs that seem to do it best are the ones that are relating to it. And so they, they figure out like what's the unique identifier of the thing inside of Revit. And so there's information the designer cares about. Let them deal with that stuff. They care about the look, the feel, the size, the requirements. The contractor cares about how to install that thing. You know, they have a whole different set of requirements around whatever object you're looking at than the designer does. And then the owner cares how to maintain it. And so you don't have to store it all in the same database, but you do have to transfer it from one to the other as needed. And I think that's probably one of the things that we're really getting into now as an industry and like Assemble does it really well. They can search a model and pair outside data. So you can do a lot of cost estimating real time based on the design model without having to like maintain a separate model. It's more of just associating data to assets. Yeah. But isn't this a little bit um, inefficient? Wouldn't be, couldn't we find a way uh, to make it easier, like uh, like I see right now, uh, like what is happening here in Norway, uh, designer is making the 3D model, is designing the building, right? And after that, the builder is making his own 3D model, how to assemble, how to put that out, right? Couldn't we find a way to to be more effective in this process? Couldn't we involve maybe if you involve both parts working from the start and like contractor? saying what I need for you to be aware when you design this wouldn't be more efficient. So we cut the cost as well of the building, right? If we find a way to make it from the start feasible for them to build it. So that kind of goes, so when I said IPD, um, that's a contract structure for a project. And so it's an integrated design process. And so the owner, the contractor and the design team all go into an agreement together and they, they work together. You don't see it that often. Normally, um, the process is design, bid, build, where architect designs, it goes out, gets bid on the street, and then contractor wins the job, and they work for the owner, and they build the building. And that, that goes into the, uh, I'm paid to do this much work, and I'm only going to do this much work because this is my fee and my portion. And so what you're describing is like, can it be better? And like, you have to get around the contracts to get into that because why is the design team going to spend twice the money because to maintain what needs to be built we can take a duct for example duct has a certain set length of, of each piece and or like a pipe there's set lengths that they have they assemble them together and there's a kit of parts where the designer cares i need to connect this thing to that thing and have these requirements around it so they're modeling within that idea and they're just doing a straight line and they're the phase that they're working in, they're gathering requirements and they're making adjustments on the fly. So if you're worried about how you're building it and you're doing it and you're building it in these individual segments, to make a small change is a massive challenge. You have to figure out all this extra stuff. So that's where like IPD, it's like, okay, we're all working together or a vertically integrated firms, another term for it. And that's where the owner, the contractor and the design, designer is one entity. They're all one thing. And so like, um, like we work in Katera are two big ones that are 
and kind of dissolving, but they're they're ones that we've talked about as this vertically integrated firm doing all of the work. And that idea is that yes, you can make it better, you can streamline it, but you have to be working together for that. And we're not set up that way right now. Uh, so uh, the IPD type of contracts are not very popular right now. It, it's it's hard when you can basically say, hey, you can't sue the contractor if they build something totally wrong to the owner. So, or, you know, they, it tends to be where they start in doing it and then they come up with a hybrid model where they kind of, you know, maybe the design and the construction team are working together, but they're separate from the owner. And so like it, you get most of the way there, but that you're not going into the ownership portion of it where you're transferring the data over to them. There's tons of diagrams on that where it's like, oh, the designer knows this much. And then they hand over the drawings to the contractor and they they have to relearn from the beginning because they don't know what the designer knew. And then they know the very most at the end of construction and they hand it over to the owner and walk away. And the owner has to learn everything about the building after that, that they have no idea. And so like keeping them together, making sure that there is value from it, it it's not there everywhere it can be. Can we do something to to push this forward to to become more mainstream? There's a lot of people trying to do things for it. Um, there's an Alex Belkoffer with McCarthy is somebody that I know who actively talks about how McCarthy is trying to change the way design firms work. A lot of it benefits the construction process, and there, there's changes that they know that the design teams can make that can really affect them. And so they're talking to owners on like, hey, you know, if, if we're working together, we can do these things. And so, you know, there, there are people looking to help and to do things, but I also see a lot where it's like making giant schemas and data structures that don't work for what the needs of the building owner are. It's, it's like, if you look at BIM execution plans and LOD, they're very blanket statement across the whole building you don't need LOD by category, you need it by area. Like you need more definition, you need more data, you need more model around certain things in certain areas of the building than you do everywhere. And, and so it, it's it's kind of one of those things where it's, how are you gonna use this stuff after the fact drives all the decisions of how the designer can help, how the contractor can help and how everybody can work together. So I, I think it's more of taking it project by project than just saying, oh, we're going to fix this problem. Yeah. And and uh, I cannot stop about thinking about what you said, that they, they, they do sometimes this kind of hybrid uh, where uh, the contractor and the designer work better, but the transfer to the owner is not happening. Who are we kidding here? The maintenance? and the use of the building, uh, what is the percent? It's 90% of the time, right? How how big segment in the life cycle of a building of, or of a project is the building, the design and the building phase? It's, it's mm -hmm. 10, maybe 15, or maximum 20%, right? Yeah. And it's actually there where we need more to increase yep. the level of knowledge and how to use this, because that is the missing chain in the whole link, right, of, of in the supply chain. Well, and there's people like me and many others, the design technologists out there love BIM and all these other things. And most owners don't have people that, like, they don't have a team of people that work in Revit, so they're not going to update this 3D model in the future. So 
you hand them this model that's meant to be a digital twin and do all these things and they're not going to update and maintain it. So then it just becomes, it, it's useless after they change the building. And, and so like if they have to go in and do a replacement of some several pieces of equipment, well, now all of a sudden the, the power loads, the requirements in these spaces, that's off from what that model is. So unless you're maintaining it, it doesn't do a thing for you. So I think that's part of the problem too. I don't know. Can we? Can we? Maybe. Uh, may, maybe it's too complicated. Like what? What? What I see right now, they don't have enough uh, uh, knowledge and uh, people that that know stuff, right? Like you also said. Uh, I don't know. It. It's either they need to invest and uh, have people that understand better how things are working, right? Or we must find a simpler way to deliver something simpler. But uh, this takes time. Of course, uh, you need more time to make a better and simpler, more complex project. It's probably right? both. And some may not need it. Like if you look at industry, um, it's going to vary by the type of building. A healthcare facility has to maintain a lot of stuff and they really benefit from this. They can use the data to help them immediately in their jobs. A, you know, a, I don't know, a store or something that they're just going to let sit there until they knock it down and renovate it in a certain couple of years or like, you know, if it's a fit out project in a, in a mall, something like that, they, you know, they're going to change it over so frequently that the model after the fact may not matter. They care more about just the square footage of that space to look at their overall retail footprint. Um, so I, I like the angle that DLR group has and that we're, we're a firm that, you know, is trying to impact the world as far as the sustainability of the world through energy and we are pushing on net zero buildings and to me you do need this level after the fact to keep a net zero building if your goal is to reduce our planet's carbon footprint you need to actually do that and you need to be able to make sure that you can do it prove you can do it uh, there's another thing out there too where when we're talking about contracts there's a lot of talk of you know get paid for your value get paid for what you're doing and not do the hourly work and you'll hear design firms talk about, you know, should we just go into a contract and say, hey, we can save your building this much energy and, you know, we'll take 2% of the savings. And like, those are things that people do. Um, but how do you actually prove that you can do that? How do, and then if there's something that the owner did, like if it's high stakes money and you actually care, then you're going to care how the building's used and you need to be able to prove, okay, well, we, we designed it based on your building being used eight to five. And then you ended up changing the use of this building and you had people in there 24 seven and it's drawing more energy than we designed it to. So like, those are things that have to be worked out in order for that model to actually work. Yeah. I know that's a side topic. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, are there any uh, forward think, uh, thinking uh, clients that, that are more driven and that have more people competent in this do, do you have around the us some clients that that uh, see the future like dlr is doing for designing we do we're working with some i'm not going to say any names because i'm not no, off top of my head sure who we can talk about um we do they're there there are glimmers of hope that give me a lot of joy in my job that's really good to hear I'm glad to hear that yeah so that's a nod to all of them if if they listen yeah. Awesome. What is VDC? Virtual design and construction. 
So BIM as a term came out, building information modeling, and construction started getting into BIM. Everybody had BIM departments. BIM was um, really marketed everywhere. And then a lot of construction companies started saying, well, we do more than just BIM. We're doing all of these things. So clash detection, we're doing estimating and though it's virtual. So how do we use digital tools to design and construct a building? And so that's where kind of BDC arose from. It, it, it works in and around BIM. So I've always kind of pitched BIM as a thing, as this actual noun. BIM is the building information model. Virtual design and construction are the activities that you can do around it to virtually design and construct a building. And so that could be, you know, a, a mechanical contractor taking a design BIM and pulling out the data of it to build their fabrication model and then actually fabricating those elements from that or a you know, if we're doing augmented reality on the job site, we're doing an overlay looking at it. Well, that's not BIM, but you're leveraging BIM to do something to help yourself with something on the job site. That is a good explanation. Good. <laughs> <laughs> um, if we go back a little bit to IPDs, mm -hmm. are there any states in the United States that are more willing or they push the legislation in any way? Can this be uh, a factor in this? Can this be helped by by uh, politics? I'm not aware of any states that are doing anything. I don't think that you could, because basically you're taking legal rights away, and that's what the contract. Like why that contract structure is challenging is that people like th there's reason to want those legal rights. Those are there to protect yourself, and taking those away it. it could put you in a bad spot and to force people to do that, it, that probably would never work. And I could, you know, it could be totally wrong five years from now, but it's one of the, I think it's why that method just hasn't really blossomed. Because when you see presentations on it, on why this should be the way, the savings there, the process there, we, we all agree that there's a problem in that I make this BIM for my design side and the contractor can't use it and they throw it away and the owner can't use it. Um, that that's agreed. Like there's not many people that aren't going to argue that or not that aren't just going to say that, yeah, that, that does seem like a bad process, but there's reasons for it. A lot of it's around like our, our AIA contracts for how we design. So like so much of it is written to, to protect the architect because they're providing design intent. They're not giving directions on how to build the model or how to build the building. They're giving you the criteria for what the building should do and how it should function. And so then the contractor is supposed to come in and take that a step further and figure out how to build that and make it work. Um, they have the designer has to provide a building that can be built. And that you know, we can get into that conversation someday. Like it, that doesn't always happen, but you do try to. Um, and that's where like you do clash detection in different ways if you're a designer than you do if you're a contractor because you're looking for things that won't work but you're not doing every single thing because you're not building the building. You're, you're giving them these construction documents that aren't the 3D model. The 3D model was a tool to help you create the construction documents. Personally, I'd love to get rid of construction documents and let that model be something you can hand over. But then you get into like a review process where you have to go to a local, like whatever town or city or state you're building in, you have to go to their plan jurisdiction 
and show them the drawings and they have to approve of this building being built. You have to do that on a number of different levels depending on where it is. Um, but the, those people require the drawings. So if we didn't have that, or we had people that could actually review a 3D model, and how do you go about doing that? Like, how do you have them review that, you know, we're requiring a set distance off of a toilet because that's what ADI, ADA says you should do. Um, or we're requiring this dimension off of a door because that's a clear space for somebody to stand. That stuff isn't shown in a 3D model. And those are questions that that reviewer will ask and say, hey, you know, the building code says you need to have these things, but they can't really see that unless they're called out in a plan in a way that they're used to reading. Um, so that, that's one of those things that we have to work through. For myself, I do try to help in that. Um, I actually just talked to a friend of mine who's um, Ryan Roberts out of the St. Louis area. He's a fire marshal there. And he had reached out to me a few years ago while I was at BSA Life Structures to help them with Bluebeam just to do digital review. And then we ended up doing a workshop to help the fire marshals in Missouri and Illinois start using Bluebeam. And the idea was to just get away from paper as a starting point. And like, how do you take measurements on a plan? How do you take measurements of these spaces? How do you read the information? Because if you can get those groups doing it virtually, then it's a step towards BIM because then you can say, okay, you're already on the computer. You're already doing this. Well, here's this other platform that has the same format that you can look at these, but then also you can just look at data. Um, and you, then you can look at like what Upcodes is trying to do. Um, are you familiar with them? Upcodes? Upcodes? Yeah. No. Okay. They're, um, and no, um, like they're, they're kind of a startup. It's like no, Upcodes is a company. Uh, they're out of Silicon Valley and they, they're actually really interesting to follow. They were being sued um, by the ICC, which is an organization that controls the building codes in, in the United States. Um, basically, they had built a database that connected to all the local jurisdictions and national laws of what the building codes were. And so then they were charging people to have access to it. So the ICC said that they can't charge people for access to this public data, but they were presenting it in a different way. And they said, you can't you know, sue us for using something that's a law. You can't have restriction on it. They actually won the lawsuit. It's been really interesting to follow. But what they've been trying to do is AI for building codes. And so you can put a BIM into their platform and it'll run checks. And they're still building, but they're, they're one of the groups that I watch. So like, They'll put a generic box by all the doors that meet these different like requirements to allow somebody in a wheelchair or, or a blind person to navigate through a building or like overhead space downstairs and automatically see if you have geometry that hits those requirements. And then they come back and say, hey, you need to fix these things. And so you see something like that. And if you compare that to somebody that has to review a 3D model, they can set up the checks for their local jurisdiction and run it through. And like that's where I can see it going. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Who said you you uh, won the this uh, dispute? It was the company, the startup, or the the startup one. Oh, that's good. That's good. Then. Yeah. Why? Why? Yeah. Why should be if if it's public? Uh, yeah, this is something like you you eliminate here every every complexity factor. Like you just have a, a, the the guy reading the drawings right now, just writing there. Do me do this test for me, and you get the answer. Yeah. And that's it. And basically you have a team that's like taking books because, you know, the building code is published in text format. Yeah. It's not in a database format. 
So you can't search it, you can't pair to it. So they're taking this and there's time required to do that. And they're putting it into a database that's very easily searchable and able to connect to whatever you need to. So there's work on their part. So to me, it makes sense that you should be paid for it. So if, if the ICC doesn't want them to be paid for it, maybe they should do it themselves. Or there should be somebody that stands up and, and donates and does that. But otherwise, you, somebody has to pay to have that there and there's value for having it. Yeah. This sounds like a huge jump in, uh, yeah, like uh, jumping over uh, many, many obstacles. Like mm -hmm. if, if something like this goes mainstream. Yeah, I've been watching it for a while because it's been really interesting for me and see, just seeing how the case was laid out. Um, and it, it was awesome to see because I've actually talked to both the people from Upcodes and they're fantastic people and they're trying to do something good based around a problem that we're aware of. Like it, it takes a lot of time to search a document for building codes. You also have to remember and know where the code is and, it, and that adds time, it adds length that really isn't that much value to the owner in the end of it. Like the building should function, it should be safe. They shouldn't pay somebody to have to go and spend two hours reviewing this information if they don't have to. Exactly. And not only that, like we as human, when we read documents, we sometimes we used to make some errors and mm -hmm. machines don't do that. <laughs> uh, well, they can if yeah. you program it wrong. And yeah, yeah, of course. But I mean, when, <laughs> when, when you test them and they are, work pro uh, are working properly, then you get much uh, higher. Uh, uh, yeah. quality, right? Well, and there's always the argument of, well, you won't know if you automate things or you won't know this stuff. And like building codes is a great example. It changes by state. It changes by city. Like they're allowed to make modifications to it and it's whichever is more strict. So then you're, you're expecting everybody to memorize all these books all over the place. And if you're reading through each one of these, it's 95% the same with a few tweaks here and there. And so you're gonna either confuse them, you're gonna make assumptions, you're gonna miss. And so if you're relying on your knowledge versus having something presented to you, it's like, hey, you're doing that in Texas and Texas does things a little bit differently than Illinois does. And so like, those, it, you don't have to know all that. You still understand how the code works, how to design around it, but you don't have to memorize every single thing. It's like math class. You don't memorize every single formula. You, memorize, you learn how to use them and then you learn where to go look for them. Exactly. Yeah, I'm thrilled about it. I hope they, they manage to, to grow and uh, do something regarding this. Yeah, on the computer, never making mistakes. Um, I, we, so we've got, we use Teams internally to communicate um, and our BIM group was messaging and somebody came across a model that had thousands of warnings. And, in Revit, if anybody's listening that doesn't know, each warning is listed in a list. And so every time you select something in Revit, it scans a list of warnings to see if there any of those are associated with this thing that I'm clicking on. More warnings means slower model. So when I, I did a lot of stuff with automation for interior design, and like if you place a wall tile, we would join the wall tile to the built wall. And if you're thinking of like how, why they would be different is like, the architect puts a wall and they're responsible for saying that this wall is built with a stud and, and chipboard on either side. And then the interior designer comes in and says that, you know, we want this finish attached to this wall. It's different than the construction. So you're not detailing it separate. 
But then to coordinate the wall openings where the door is, is a pain. So I'll join one wall to the other. What I did is I scripted that. And so we placed all the walls in the building for the, the interiors finish. And then we joined them. And I had my like lacing is a term for like, if you're doing one thing to all or one to one, um, I basically joined each wall to every wall in the model. And I created a list of warnings of like, I don't know, it was like a hundred thousand different warnings in their model. And so it just crippled the team. So that's one of those, like the computer can make problems if you program it wrong. Um, so that's a lesson learned that I always give is check to make sure that what you did works because you may be thinking you're saving time for somebody and really made the entire team really slow. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Like I said, that needs to be checked. And yeah. you, you you cannot start, uh, you cannot trust from the start, right? But if you... if it, And you learn by making mistakes. That's why we have uh, different uh, third-part controls, right? Uh, on, on the project. Mm-hmm. So, if, yeah, uh, this can be done as well in the start. Uh, but yeah, that that would speed up a lot, and yeah, would uh, would complete the entire uh, supply chain, like uh, yeah, lift lift the entire process. Mm -hmm. How do you feel Beam is adopted across United States? That is a hard, vague question. Um... Adopted are, you as happy, in, are you happy with uh, how do you see this at different levels? Like if you think about companies, different uh, designers, different uh, contractors, different asset owners, are most of them using, trying to digitalize and using modern tools or most of them are still behind? Most are. Um, most are definitely trying and using things. When it comes to BIM, it's funny because it's a 20-year-old platform like Revit's 20 years old and we still have less people in every firm that are BIM experts and Revit user experts and don't know all the commands that are there don't don't leverage it to its fullest extent um so to me it's just the fact that it's probably too hard like it we uh we're talking about like training for each year like what things what training talks do we have to have and we got into this conversation about Oh, we need to train people on how to open the files, how to print, how to make levels, how to make structural grids. And I'm like, that's the, the easiest, most basic thing that you need. And then it's like, well, you know, people still make that mistake and we need to do it. And it's like, okay, if, if people can't draw the level and it's too difficult, then we've made it too hard. We haven't done it right if it takes training every single year on how to just say that the first floor is at 100 feet. Like that, that is a problem in BIM, not firms trying to leverage it and push it. So for me, it, it the automation's fun in that we're kind of at this point where, you know, we have people coming in that programming skills and understand things. You have people that really have learned the back end of a program and can make it do whatever they want. And when you put those together, if you think of a good workflow, you can actually make it that people don't have to ever create that level but, and do the things that we think people should know how to do in BIM that really don't add that much value. Like the, at the end of the day, the, what we're trying to do is design a building that is fantastic. Like we want to make a building that changes people's lives. We want to make a building that functions really well. Like we're, we're trying to design something to provide to be built and all the other stuff is, is good and necessary, but not what we're like, it's a byproduct of what we're trying to do. Yeah. What? are you teaching on LinkedIn? 
so I've got some courses, like a lot of it's around using Revit for presentation styles. Um, so I've got a design or what is it? Revit for visualization, um, where it's a lot of the visibility settings and things of Revit. And I've, it's not for rendering, but it's how you can use Revit as a presentation tool to convey design. And then there's like presenting design options. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on Dynamo. And then right now I'm working on one that's uh, proving ROI on technology. And so that this one's kind of fun. It's unique for me in that it's not a fix and clicks how to do something, but it's, hey, we're in, implementing this new thing. How are we going to prove that the value is there? How are we going to track the value of something and then actually show our executive leadership that what we've invested in was worth it? When are you going to publish this course? Well, normally I fly out to Carpinteria, California and record. And with COVID, that's not happening. So I have no idea. We were supposed to do it in August. Um, so it, it's kind of sit and wait and see. Uh, but my guess would be if it gets deep into winter, that we'll probably just record it here and, and send it out. But I'm hoping to go out there. That's like one of my favorite places to go. It's right on the beach in California. Um, and it's like, it's really a, a beautiful spot to spend a week if you can. Yeah, I see. But, uh, nonetheless, uh, sounds like a very, very exciting course. So don't, don't wait so long. Just uh, yeah. record it yeah. at home. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> you can take a trip for the, for the beach after yeah. COVID. We don't know when that, that, uh, that will stop. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. It'll be next year or two years from now. Who knows? Or never. Yeah. Uh, regarding BIM adoption and uh, yeah, BIM knowledge and such, uh, what do you know about outside uh, United States? Uh, how do you it's feel? The, uh, how do you feel the is going with the BIM adoption across the globe, outside the United States? That's a hard one to ask because the people that I talk to are usually wildly interested in this stuff. So my perspective, like my LinkedIn feed is full of AI people. And like every every time I scan something, there's just more amazing. And I keep connecting to people that I find interesting. So to me, my, my perspective of things is starting to get really skewed. And I probably need to dial that back a bit. Um, but I, I do know that US, when I look at some other people, when I talk to other people, it sounds like we're generally further ahead with a lot of things BIM-wise that we're using. Uh, but then I look at a lot of people in Australia that I've been talking to, and you know they're really getting into AI. There's the Bad Monkeys group. They're doing some amazing things as far as pushing what we can do because of the data that's there. So I, I, I don't totally know. Um, I know that there's a shift coming when it comes to BIM. I know we're kind of on that cusp, but like, the platform's mature, people have mastered it. I was actually thinking about, like I mentioned that automation or automating construction documents project, the effort that we're putting into programming where a dimension goes is like, then I look at what AI can do with photo recognition and predict out where that dimension goes. And it's a lot faster and it's a lot easier. Um, so it's like, how much is this gonna disrupt where we are and I think the firms that are really dabbling into that and, and kind of seeing the value of what you can get out of it and structuring their data in a way that they can put it in to get that value, I think that that's going to let them ramp up so quickly that it's going to really disrupt them at, as the current state. 
So you think AI, it's, it's happening. It's happening and it's going to have a big impact in our industry. It's happening. I don't hear many people like in roles like myself that are talking about it in a very tangible way. It's more of like AI is going to come in and do these things. Um, and it's more of like, well, you also, uh, culture just eats technology adoption. Like you, you can come in with a great idea. It could be wonderful, but you also have to change the culture of a whole firm to adopt that technology. And AI is one of those things, like there's the fear of the computer replacing people. So the path of how you weave that in is really important. You have to have it small tasks that can save somebody, improve time and do things. Um, I'm starting to kind of look at like how we circuit electrical devices. So if you think of like outlets in a room there, you can wire them together and there's a set amount of load that you can put on each circuit in a panel box. And then you need to do that in a way that it works for the facilities manager to go in all these rooms, shut things off and work. And so there's some nuances in that makes it a little difficult to just program hey, maximum of 16 and then closest walk and put these things together. If you did AI, all you have to do is give it the list of location of each of those devices around the room, which circuit it's on, which panel it's on, and let it learn from say 10 projects. And then you have a trained model that can automatically predict out what these things should be. And then you just accept it. And so like something like that is just, it's easier to learn from our past and what we do and how we work because it watches and learns like a person. But if you're, if you're just going with, I, I want AI to design the building. Okay, but somebody's going to revolt against that and not use it. So it's like, how do you integrate it in in a way that it gets adopted, but where you can also leverage the power that's there? Yeah, but uh, like, I, I still think it's a, a, a little bit or more unclear how how this can happen for for the leadership of companies, because let's be honest, if leadership of companies see the value there, they don't think so much. Not many of them don't think too much about the employees, right? If they see a way that, yeah, we can take this software and we can design 10 buildings instead of one in a year, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's hard as they can do that. And we don't, we don't jump into that. So like, it, there's definitely something not that, and you know, architecture is a practice. Like people go into architecture, they're not going into business to make money. They're going into architecture because they enjoy architecture or engineering. Yeah. Or like, th there's a difference there in how people are wired for it because you're not wired to just go and make business. If executive leadership was a business person and it was how do we make the most profit for this company, you'd probably ditch architecture and start selling paper or whatever. Like you'd, you'd shift to something else because it's more profitable. Like we do this because we love it. We do this because we can make an impact and we can do things that we truly care about. And the money's kind of a broad byproduct. Like, it, you know, you do great design, you do great work, and then you, you hope you still have a stable company. It's kind of like one of the approaches that you see people take. Um, so I think that has a part of it. Um, there's also with AI, it doesn't give you the same results. So like if you run the same, like, you know, predict out if this is a hammer versus this being a shoe, it's not going to be the same every time because it, it runs through inferences and it learns as it goes. So people can pick at it and, and look at how it's not reliable because you don't know what it, why it came to that decision. And that I think is a challenge for it. So it's kind of how you leverage tools, how you create tools that it's woven into to save yourself time and improve yourself and really to analyze a lot of data that we have 
in a tangible way that you can use it. Yeah. No, I I don't think we are going to be replaced so soon. I think there is enough room for like uh, I think what is going to happen, we will get AI working more for us and we will mm -hmm. uh, like we need to graduate to retrain ourselves or or learn new skills to to work together with AI. We definitely going mm -hmm. to have a role there. Uh we are far ahead, I think, like uh, until we we are going to just click a button and get the entire building and everything else. Brian Myers put a post out on LinkedIn talking about, um, you know, the Boston Dynamics robot dog that's on the site and walking around. And in his post, he had mentioned that, you know, you know, we have a rover on Mars that can drill and it can drill a hole with precision where they want it. And then you see this dog on the job site walking around scanning. Well, how long till that job dog can have a drill that drills through the concrete slab for a pipe to go through? I bet it's going to make less errors. And I bet it's going to do it in the exact right spot. And then you're talking about money. And so if you look at COVID and let's say that there's a mandate that nobody be on a job site and a construction company can't make money, but that's that tipping point. Like that's what you're kind of looking out for. It's like, it, what is the balance of cost of money for automation and AI versus keeping people doing it? And then if there's something that removes people and you have to still make profit, it, then you jump into these things. So there's me, I'm kind of sitting here watching, like how much is COVID going to shift the construction site? Because if people can't be there, I know for us, we're like really pushing on reality capture because we, you know, we can't send people to the site. So we're going to go capture it. And then we're going to go let our teams review and do punch lists from remote because they can still act as if they're there. So I think that there may be things that get ramped up because of this too. Like you're talking about that, you know, it pushes innovation. So how someone can reach to you? if they want to contact with you? Yeah, just find me on LinkedIn. Um, I, I connect, I don't think I've ever declined a connection. Um, so unless it looks like a totally fake connection, which that's happening more. Um, so just reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm happy to chat. Um, and yeah, that's the best way. Awesome. Thank you very much for taking the time being here. And uh, I'm looking forward to see your course. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a, a lot of fun. Don't take too long to record it. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah. No guarantees. <laughs> All right. Sure. Take care. Thank you. Yep. Bye-bye.